stand please for the reading of God's word, John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She, brought it, she bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. From this passage, I'll preach from the title, People to be loved. People to be loved. This week, Maggie and I started watching a television show that I'm guessing some of you have, have been watching for a few weeks, Abbott Elementary. Anybody read? Okay, all right. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's, it's a show about a teacher at a public school in Philadelphia, a, 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 a young and new teacher. Uh, Janine Teagues is the optimistic second grade uh, teacher who is discovering her deep passion for education. She loves her students, and and she sees these little humans as capable of great and amazing things. Ms. Teague vacillates between anger and despair when others treat her students as not fully capable humans, but as problems to solve or as objects to manage. I'm interested in this. I'm interested in how the show portrays our tendency to reduce people to objects. In the second episode, Ms. Teague's colleagues can't understand why she is so committed to replacing a rug in her classroom. It's only at the end of the episode that we learn that one of her students takes a nap on that rug each lunch period, having told his teacher that it is the safest and most comfortable place available to him. You see, this teacher understands, she she sees the nuanced and the particular humanity in each of her students, and this is what fuels her passion. She humanizes those Others have objectified. Just before Jesus enters Jerusalem for his final week before the crucifixion, John records him staying in the home of his good friends, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And over dinner, provoked by an unexpected and an extravagant act of worship, Judas speaks an accusation which drips with objectification. In his mouth, both Mary and the poor are reduced to generalities, illustrations which serve his own self-righteous purposes. And importantly, Jesus defended Mary by refuting Judas's objectification. Now, I was planning to preach this passage for a few weeks, and then Valerie brilliantly pe- preached from this story from the parallel passage in Luke 7 last week. And I almost scrapped my plan, 
But the differences between Luke's account and John's account are significant enough that I think there's a few more things for us to pay attention to. But having said that, if you missed Valerie's sermon, you really ought to go back and listen to it on the podcast from our website. So it's this emphasis, the emphasis on Judas's objectifying tendencies that really stood out to me in John's telling of this story. Because you see, this is what the story builds to in these verses. And, and Jesus' only words in this passage come in response to what Judas said. So I want to phrase my singular point today in the form of an exhortation. Resist objectifying people by accepting Christ's humanizing love. Can I say that again? Resist objectifying people by accepting Christ's humanizing love. You see, each of us are susceptible to the same things Judas was susceptible to. We are susceptible to reducing our fellow image bearers of God to mere objects, objects which we use to make a point or to meet a need. And in this passage, Judas stands as a blunt warning against our objectifying tendency. In Jesus, though, we see something different. Where Judas uses people for his own purposes, Jesus humanizes them. His love honors the holiness of each image bearer of God. His love calls out the distinct characteristics which makes each person a reflection of their creator. His is a humanizing love. And in a world which, is, which so often reduces our humanity, I think this is an incredible gift and one we maybe should pay attention to. So Jesus and his disciples come to Bethany where they had been previously. It's six days before the Passover when, as Pete mentioned to us, he will celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples. Bethany is just a few miles outside of Jerusalem. It's where Jesus had resurrected back to life his friend Lazarus. And here in this village, a dinner party is thrown to honor Jesus. And at that party, Mary does something very strange, very unusual. If it seems strange to you, it seems strange to them as well. She takes this very expensive perfume made out of a a nard plant, which had been squeezed and pressed to get out the little bit of oil, and she had poured it out on Jesus' feet. This was incredibly costly, incredibly extravagant. It represented about a year's worth of wages. So if you can imagine one singular act for your whole year's paycheck, this is what is represented in Mary's act. And Judas watches this and he objects. He publicly objects. Now, he didn't have to do that. Uh, This was not a dinner for Judas. This was a dinner for Jesus. He could have kept his opinions to himself, but he didn't. He stands up and says, why was this perfume not sold and the money given to the poor? I I think that that it's fair to say that Judas is objectifying both Mary and the poor in his statement. We know, after all, that Judas will betray Jesus. John tells us in this passage that that Judas has been stealing from the common purse. So, So we know his motives were not pure. Instead, he objectifies Mary 
and he objectifies the poor. According to one definition, to objectify is to treat a person as an object or a thing. Judas objectifies Mary by using her sacrifice uh, to promote his own self-righteous posture. He objectifies the poor by appropriating their suffering for his own purposes. He dehumanizes both of them. And and, and I, I wonder if we put ourselves for a moment in Judas's shoes, if we cannot hold them at a distance, but actually consider the ways in which we have Judas-like tendencies ourselves, who might we be tempted to objectify? Who are the people you interact with who perhaps not purposefully you end up treating as a little less than the person at the nail shop, the person at the dry cleaners, the young person serving you at the restaurant. I am convinced that the only way that many of us can actually sleep well at night is that we have bought into the way our culture objectifies entire groups of people. The only way we can be okay with the suffering that is around us is if we on some deep level, assume a less-than-human perspective. What do you see when you stand in Judas' shoes? What do you see when you stand in Mary's shoes? In what ways have you been used? Have you been made less than? Have you been objectified? What is it that you would want to happen in this moment where you're standing in Mary's shoes? Because what happens is that Jesus speaks up. Leave her alone. Now, just like Judas didn't have to say anything, Jesus didn't have to say anything. Judas wasn't talking to Jesus. He was talking to himself. He was just wanting the room to hear how sophisticated and righteous and enlightened he was. But Jesus won't let it slide. He interjects. Jesus places himself between Judas and Mary. He will not let the objectification go without question. He meets Judas's objectifying attack with his love, with his humanizing love. And Jesus can do this because Jesus is credible with both Mary and the poor. Mary knew Jesus. Mary trusted Jesus. Mary had been through some stuff with Jesus. The poor knew Jesus. The poor could testify to Jesus' love for them, for his presence among them, for the way that he brought the kingdom of heaven into their very midst. So Jesus doesn't have to stand up and give a long soliloquy. He doesn't have to give a long speech. He doesn't have to say a lot of stuff to Judas because he had credibility with Mary and with those who had been slandered. And so all he has to really say is, that's enough, Judas. Leave her alone. Jesus humanizes where Judas objectifies. Jesus engages in the particularities, the specifics of our humanity. Jesus loves concretely specifically. Resist, friends, objectifying people by accepting Christ's humanizing love. Can can we acknowledge this morning, can we confess this morning the ways that we are like Judas? 
Can we be honest enough in our own hearts to recognize the person or the people who we are prone to reduce from their full humanity? Perhaps some of us this morning would benefit as well from pausing and and noticing how we ourselves have been objectified in this world. By hearing and noticing how Jesus intervenes for Mary and understanding and seeing that Jesus intervenes for us in the same way. Amen? That Jesus stands between us. Judas is a warning. He is a warning about what objectification disguised as concern looks like and the way that we are prone to that. So if if Judas shows the tendency that we are all susceptible to, to objectify, if, if Jesus exemplifies a love which humanizes, how do we be more like Jesus? Anybody here prefer to be more like Jesus than Judas? Right, so how? how? How do we do that? I think scripture shows us that as we accept more and more of Christ's love for us, we can more and more love like Jesus loved. The deeper our experience of the humanizing love of Jesus in our own hearts, the more prone we are to be able to love like Jesus, even in a society which objectifies left and right. And I think that in Martha and Lazarus and Mary, we actually have three examples of how we can intentionally and practically accept more of the love of Jesus for us. So I've got my my nifty little diagram here. I need you all to be impressed with this. Are you impressed with this? Thank you. I don't totally believe you. And then could I need a volunteer real quick who's got some decent handwriting to come up and and write any who's got like really good handwriting because this is not me. All right, Sarah's gonna come on up. Um, Okay. Sarah, if you could take this black marker and in the top left circle, write Martha. And then in the top right circle, write Lazarus. Uh Uh-huh. It's all right. It's a lot of pressure in front of people. You're doing way better than I would. And then in the bottom, if you can write Mary. Sarah's doing amazing, isn't she? It's amazing. Come on, y'all. Come on. And then if you can take the red one and in the, in the, just kind of shade in a little bit right there in the middle of the Venn diagram. This is a Venn diagram, right? Is, that my, is my using that correctly? Okay. Awesome. Sarah Woody, everybody. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, Sarah. So, let, let's, let's just spend a couple of minutes and notice the, uh, the examples of these three people in this story. And I think that if, if we lean in to their postures, that we will actually be more and more prone to receiving Christ's love for us and being able to express it to others. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's start with Martha. What what does Martha exemplify? The text tells us, very simply, that Martha served. Very simple. Now, in in Luke chapter 7, there's a story of Martha serving to the point of being distracted. But that's not what's happening in this story. In this story, Martha is just serving. And serving is central to discipleship. 
Serving is central to following Jesus. Uh, Jesus, in, in John's gospel, at the Last Supper, he will put a towel around himself, he'll wash his disciples' feet, and then he'll say, I need you to, to do what you just saw me do. I was an example, now you serve one another in this way. When we serve each other, we are actually serving Jesus. So Martha ex- exemplifies a service, a servant heart. Uh, we've got a lot of amazing servant-hearted people in our church. Um, I'm going to tell on a couple of them. Uh, Hollis and Jennifer, longtime members of our church, every month they, uh, they, they, they reach out to a senior citizen in our community who's kind of homebound, and they get his grocery list, and then they go grocery shopping for him, and they bring all of those groceries to his house. And they've been doing this all pandemic long. It was like a part of an official program. That program ended a long time ago. Now they're just friends, and they just keep doing this every single month. I love it. Um, Brent, where's Brent? Brent's still here. Did he have to leave? He left already. Well, I can tell him even more then. Brent, we, we, we celebrated his birthday last year. He has been on that soundboard for 12 years, serving quietly, faithfully, so that we all can have an experience of worship. He's in the background. Most of us don't even notice that he's there, but he's serving you as he serves Jesus every single week. You see, we can't serve objects. We can only serve people. Serving one another is an antidote to the objectifying nature of our society. Because when we are serving one another, we, we realize that these are not objects to be used, things to be manipulated, but people to be loved. Amen? Yesterday, I went to the ministry center to get some work done. I walked in, and there's all of these students in the ministry center from the New Community Outreach Key Program, there for their monthly circle, hangout time, laugh, eat pizza, do fun, crazy stuff. And among that group are a handful of adults, uh, many of them from our church, who serve as mentors to those young people seeing them, knowing their stories, loving them as the particular people God created them to be. We cannot serve objects. And here's the other thing about service. When we have a culture of servanthood, we don't just serve, but we allow ourselves to be served. And and some of us, it's a lot easier to serve than to be served, right? Some of you are great about serving, but then letting somebody else serve you can be pretty difficult. The problem is, is that church is not capitalism, Church is not an exchange of good and services. We serve and we are served among the people of God. Amen? So you need to allow yourself to be served as well. And one of the simple ways that we can do this is to thank one another for the ways that we serve each other. So that on the way out today, you can grab Daniel and you can say, thank you for serving on the soundboard, Daniel. Everybody turn around, just practice it right now. Thank you for serving on... See, that's great. Not too bad, right? You could grab Hannah and say, thank you for leading us in prayer today. You could grab a prayer team person after communion and say, thank you for praying for us today. One of the the simple ways of receiving somebody else's service is to see it and to thank them for it. Amen? A spirit of gratitude with that culture of service. Okay, so let's move on to Lazarus. So, So I would just ask you, when it comes to service, how are you serving Jesus as you serve the people of God? Right? That new community, we all serve, and it's our way of serving Jesus as we serve another. What does Lazarus do in this story? Nothing. <laughs> he reclines at the table. 
Now, I read this and I was like, man, that's the patriarchy right there. You know, like Martha's serving. She's doing all the things. But Lazarus was dead. Like in chapter 11. So maybe, like maybe there's some patriarchy. Maybe dude's just tired. Maybe he's just like, I'm glad to be alive. And I'm going to hang out a little bit with the man who brought me back to life. Okay, I'm going to assume the best about Lazarus in this story. I think that Lazarus shows us what it looks like to rest with Jesus. Somebody say rest. Just to be in the presence of Jesus. See, we can't just serve, 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 serve. No, 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 that's not healthy. What Lazarus shows us is that to accept the love of Jesus is to also rest in the presence of Jesus. It's really hard to to commodify people or to accept others commodifying yourself when you are observing a Sabbath rest. Because rest is a gift. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Sabbath rest is not a vacation that you saved up for, that you worked really hard for, that you deserved. It's just a gift once a week to stop and rest. And I think Lazarus reminds us of this, that to accept the love of Jesus is to regularly cease our work and simply be with Jesus. Some of us need to experience some of the resurrection that Lazarus had experienced at this point in the pandemic. Some of us, as Hannah prayed earlier, we don't need to go back to the old normal. We don't need to force things to, 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 to be the way we think they need to be. Some of us in our brokenness, in our fatigue, in our exhaustion, some of us in, in our strained mental health, we just need to rest in the presence of Jesus. Somebody say Amen. Okay, lastly, who's the last person that we've got? All right, you're tracking. Mary. What does Mary exemplify? Oh, can I say one last thing about Lazarus? Notice that he rests in community. I do think this is really important because I think some of us mistake rest for isolation. And, 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 and man, most of us don't need any more isolation in our lives right now. Please understand that the invitation to rest is not an invitation to seclude yourself, to isolate yourself, to hide. Yes, occasionally we need to retreat and be alone with Jesus. But rest that we see exemplified in scriptures is resting together. It's resting with the people of God. It's resting in community. Does that make sense? Okay, Mary. What does Mary exemplify? I think Mary exemplifies worship. And here's why I think this. Four details. First, how expensive that perfume was. She gave away a year's worth of her salary. Second, she lets down her hair, which in her society would have been a sign of being immoral. Third, she anoints Jesus' feet, not his head, which would have been typical, a sign of profound humility. And then fourth, the text tells us that afterwards the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think if you take all four of these together, what we see is an extravagant act of worship. Like there's nothing, there's nothing buttoned down about this worship. There's there, there nothing comfortable about this worship. Now, nobody in the scene is going like, oh yes, I, uh, we're entering worship now and this is what is expected of me. It's just like, it's like chaotic worship. 
And I actually think that Judas's response to Mary is incredibly appropriate. Judas's response is incredibly rational. Because from the outside, what Mary is doing makes absolutely no sense. It's embarrassing. It's a waste of time. It's a distraction. It's certainly a waste of money. Judas's response to Mary's worship is, is completely and totally rational. But, but, but Mary is not operating from the outside. Mary is not standing from the outside going, now, now what should my worship look like? What would make sense here? Mary's operating from an experience of Jesus' power in her life. Her brother had been dead, yeah. and he's not dead anymore. Yeah. Mary's worship from that vantage point is the most commonsensical thing in the world. Yeah. It's like, well, what else would I do? Like, like, if I had more perfume, I would have poured that out as well. If I had more hair, I would have let that down as well. If you had more feet, I would have anointed those as well. Like, like what she does makes total sense from within an experience of the power of God. Amen? Worship will never make sense from an outsider perspective. I need to preach this to a handful of you today. Worship will never, because some of us, we come to new community, and Marquita or Sharice or Esther or Brandy or Brandon, they exhort us to worship. And some of us have kind of gotten comfortable with an outsider experience of worship. We've been so formed by screens over the past two years that we come in sort of ready to observe worship. Oh, I'm glad to be in the room again, and, and the sound's a little bit better, and, and the feed's not dropping, and I can see a little bit, bit better, and, and Pastor Dave doesn't keep, keep messing up the angles on, on, the, on the camera. But we're coming as outsiders to worship. And what Mary shows us is that worship is intended to be an experience of the power of God in our lives. Worship is not meant to make sense. It's not meant to be rational. It's not meant to be intelligible to people who do not confess the name of Jesus. It's not meant to be respectable. Worship should only make sense to those who have also experienced the power of God in their lives. Am I, are you tracking with me? Mary doesn't care a lick about what Judas thinks. I don't even think Mary hears what Judas is saying. Because it's irrelevant to her. You don't know me. You don't know my story. You don't know what God has done for me. So that's all tuned out. Can I ask, what would it look like for you to come to worship having already reminded your heart about what Jesus has done for you? So that when Esther stands in front of you and calls you to worship, you already have reminded yourself of who God has been for you. So that when Marquita exhorts us to praise, so that when Sharice invites us to lean in, we cannot help but respond with our whole bodies. Am I preaching to anybody today? So what if we hold all three of these together? What if we find ways to serve the people of God? 
to rest regularly with Jesus and to come to worship, ready to worship as those who have experienced the power of God in our lives. Here's my hypothesis. You and I will be better able to accept the love of Jesus in our own lives. The humanizing love of Jesus. The particularizing love of Jesus. The specific love of Jesus for us as beloved children of God. And so, we will be much better able to express that love to those around us. To see those who our society has objectified and commodified and reduced and to see them in their particularity, and to respond with the love of God to each of those women and men in our own lives. I don't have any idea where my notes are right now. Somebody help me. All right, we'll just, we're just going to wrap it up, because we've got to come to the table. I'm so glad we're coming to the table this morning. As you come, would you ask yourself, have I accepted Jesus' love for me? And for some of you, you're like, yeah, well, I wouldn't be here otherwise. How about this? Are you regularly accepting Jesus' love for you? Like, are you regularly reminded of Jesus' particular, specific love for you? That he does not see you as a category, as a generality. He does not see you as someone to use for his purposes. Are you regularly receiving the love of Jesus for you? The more you receive this love, the harder it will be to turn anybody into an object to be used. The harder it will be for anyone's objectification to take root in your own heart. So in just a minute, we're going to come to the table again as we've been doing every week during Lent. At this table, we are each of us received in love as image bearers of the living God does not matter how you have been reduced or commodified or objectified this week. You come to this table at the invitation of the God who sees you and who loves you. No matter how we have sinned against our God, our neighbors, or ourselves this week, the grace of Jesus welcomes us to this table again where we receive the tangible, physical expressions of the love of God for us, the broken body and the poured out blood. So before we come, I want to just give you a couple of minutes of quiet. And, and I'd, I'd like you to consider again, Martha and Lazarus and Mary. Martha's service, Lazarus's rest, and Mary's worship. Would you ask yourself, how are these ways of receiving Jesus's love present in my life today? Is the Holy Spirit inviting you to more consistent service in any way? Is the Spirit inviting you to stop your work regularly and just rest in the presence of Jesus? Is there any ways you are being invited to more extravagant expressions of worship? Friends, you were made to know the love of God. How might the Spirit invite you to experience more of God's love that you might love others with the humanizing love of Jesus?